Several years ago, our family was on vacation for a few days uh, in southern Thailand near Phuket, which is a tourist area in the south of Thailand. And some friends of ours uh, flew over from the States to go down there with us. And one of the people who came was a friend, Rob, who likes to deep sea fish. Uh, Rob's a surgeon, so he has deep pockets and he can afford to go first class. Uh, And so one morning he hired this uh, chartered fishing boat for us to go off the west coast out into the Indian Ocean to fish for swordfish. And my son, Lewis, was only too happy to volunteer for that particular trip. Drove to the pier uh, that morning, boarded this beautiful ocean-going fishing boat that was owned by a guy from England uh, who ran the the boat and the guide service. We motored out, began uh, trolling for the fish, but the fish weren't cooperating that morning. So after a couple of hours, very hot out there, so we went, the the three of us and the boat owner, the English guy, went into this air-conditioned cabin as we were cruising around watching these lures trailing the boat uh, from behind. The English boat owner had followed a dream that he had had as a young man, uh, moved to Thailand, uh, bought this boat, started the guide service. He married a Thai woman. They eventually had a little girl uh, who was in elementary school in Phuket. In our conversation, uh, I eventually asked him if he had grown up in a Christian background in England. He said that he had, uh, said that his uh, wife was a Buddhist, which, you know, most Thai are Buddhist, and, and his, his wife occasionally took the daughter to the local temple. So I I just was curious. I asked him if he and his wife ever disagreed about what to teach their daughter, uh, Buddhism or Christianity. And uh, he explained that he wanted his little girl exposed to both. He wanted to be absolutely neutral uh, and about whatever choice that she would prefer to make. And then, uh, I I mean, I I think I was coming across pretty friendly and non-intrusive. But uh, he began expressing this really strong opinions about the equal validity of all faiths, that every religion, you know, it's a very common view, every religion is an equally effective approach to God, said he thought it would be manipulative uh, to encourage his daughter to embrace one faith or another. Very confident in his view. It seemed to be a little critical and condescending toward anybody uh, that might have another uh, point of view. So I asked him if I could ask a couple of questions about his point of view. And uh, he said, sure, no problem. And so I said, you flew out here from London on an aircraft, didn't you? He said, yeah, yeah, sure. I said, said, a pilot flew that plane, didn't he? He Yeah, yeah, of course. I said, would you have been confident with a plumber uh, flying the aircraft? And uh, he uh, looked at me and chuckled kind of cynically. And then I said, isn't it true that there are some absolutely inflexible laws of aeronautics that must be known and followed very, very carefully to get an aircraft off the ground and then get it safely back down? 
and he looked kind of thoughtful. And then said, I've noticed we've been using these big old yellow and black lures with these squiggly tails that are hanging out behind, uh, hanging off the end of them. I said, why not use purple and green? And uh, he smiled. He didn't say anything. And I said, I suspect we use yellow and black lures with these squiggly tails because you know that there are some inflexible facts of swordfish behavior and that they just can't stomach purple and green. And so I have a question for you, I I told him. I said, "Um, why should you and I believe that there are inflexible facts or laws that govern the natural world, but there aren't any in the spiritual world? And then the conversation wound down a little bit at that point because I think he, he probably had never thought very deeply about his point of view. And uh, the, <laughs> he held some very common beliefs about religion that are very popular in global culture, and he had some very strong feelings about it. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, if you've lived in Beijing for very long, uh, you know that this place is a place of exceptional uh, cultural diversity. Our acquaintances, many of them literally next door, uh, often come from a variety of religious traditions. Some of them have extremely different points of view uh, from us and from each other. And, of course, none of us uh, wants to offend anybody. Uh, We generally, uh, uh, people in general, I think, and, and certainly Christian Uh, People uh, don't want to do that, so we experience often a great deal of intellectual and cultural pressure to adopt the view that this guy was espousing. Uh, We're in a five-week teaching series called No One Like Him, Six Extraordinary Facts About Jesus That Everybody Should Know. And this morning, I'd like to describe briefly three wildly popular ideas in global culture, and then I'd like to contrast them uh, with very specific and important statements made by Jesus or made about Jesus. Wildly popular idea number one, uh, religions only offer symbolic information. They can therefore all be equally true. One of the most widely known proponents of this view is a TV commentator in the United States for many years is a guy named Bill Moyers. He's known uh, not so much in the most recent years, but years ago he was known throughout the U.S. and probably in other parts of the world because he's a very prominent television uh, commentator. But uh, some time ago, he hosted a television special called The Power of Myth, and it was watched by millions of people. And on the program, he said this, and we have a quote for you. He said, every religion is true one way or another when understood symbolically or metaphorically. We are in deep trouble, though, when a religion starts believing that its teaching 
is factual. Now that, you, that, that is a very deep and prevailing view in the global culture. It's, it's a very popular idea, as popular culture ideas sometimes are. But what does Jesus say about this? All of us here, whether we're believers or followers of Christ or not, we have some respect for Jesus. Most of us are Christ followers. But what does Jesus say about this? Well, for example, in John chapter 8, uh, verse 45 and 47, in a conversation uh, with some of his opponents who were very antagonistic toward him, he was defending it himself, and he says, I speak the truth. And then he said, he who is of God hears the words of God. So he is presuming in this statement that he's just not another guy with an opinion, but that he is expressing some facts that correspond to spiritual reality and that are all people who are genuinely open to the truth will recognize that. They will hear. They will understand that this isn't just another person's opinion. These are the very words of God. 22 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the word truth. It's one of the central ideas of his teaching. And let me define truth for you as defined in the dictionary. Truth is information that is objectively consistent with the facts of reality in any matter under consideration. It is accurate and genuine information in contrast to the imaginary, the fictitious, the counterfeit, or the uncertain. Well, Jesus says that he speaks the truth. He is talking about factual reality. We, not, we may not be able to immediately perceive and see it in the way that we see the natural world, but it's just as factual and real nonetheless. And uh, speaks truth about what? Well, he speaks truth about what God is like, how he feels about us, what he desires uh, for us, and what he requires of us. And I believe that truth or light in the Bible is not like the floodlights in a huge football stadium. There's lots of truth in the world, scientific and historical and otherwise, that are obviously not contained in the Bible. What is the truth that he speaks? Uh, it's about these facts, and the, the light that the Bible illuminates is not, it doesn't illuminate everything. It's more like a candle in a dark room. It only illuminates the region immediately surrounding it, but through that light, it's very clear. You can see quite clearly what it is, in fact, illuminating. And, of course, while at times the Bible uses symbolic language, its underlying premise is that it is describing indisputable facts about God. Wildly popular idea number two. People should choose the religion that best meets their particular emotional and psychological needs. Now, the Dalai Lama, of course, is the world leader of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, 20 years ago, he was invited to speak at this 
1993 Parliament of the World's Religions in the city of Chicago in the northern U.S. And this uh, Parliament of World Religions was attended by 20,000 people. And at that Congress, he said this. He said, each religion has its own philosophy. There are similarities as well as differences among the various traditions. What's important is what is suitable for a particular person. Everyone feels his or her form of religious practice is the best. I myself feel that Buddhism is best for me, but this does not mean that Buddhism is best for everyone else. Now, that's a very pluralistic, uh, kind sort of view, um, and it appeals, doesn't it? It, it, it appeals to our certain of our instincts. We normally get to make lots of personal choices. We are generally a very affluent group of people, um, and we get to make lots of personal choices about our career path, our marriage partner, house, car, style of clothing. So it's very easy to begin believing that this type of reasoning about choice is valid in the area of our religious preference. It sounds good. It appeals to the consumer a part of us that enjoys uh, making choices because we, we, we just innately believe that we're entitled to our preferences. The critical question is this. What if our spiritual well-being and eternal destiny depends on understanding some very specific facts. And we choose a religion that's not factually true. This is an important question to consider. For three years, Jesus developed a very close relationships with a relatively small group of men and women And these men and women became leaders of a movement that swept across and ultimately changed the values of Western civilization for over two millennia. And then, of course, it's had a profound effect in Asia in the 20th century, having a significant effect in China and Asia and other ways uh, in these days. But one of the key leaders, the person with whom he had the closest personal relationship, an individual that had an opportunity to observe his life, his character, his thinking, his feelings, his choices very closely for several years. And, you know, if if we live with somebody for three years... Uh, you can get a pretty good idea, a pretty good handle on who they are, what they're about. And toward the end of his life, after he had had about 50 years of reflection on it, John said this, he says in John 1.14, he said, the word, he's using this expression, the word, to talk about Jesus, the word became human. That is, the word of God became human and dwelled among us. We witnessed his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he says a couple of verses later in 117, he says, grace and truth were 
realized through Jesus Christ. Now, this word translated realized is genomai in the Greek text, which is the original language that the gospel is written in, and it means to come into existence, to appear, to come upon the stage. So what John is telling us, after observing him so intimately and witnessing these miraculous events, both during the life of Jesus on earth and then subsequent to that, is that the truth has broken in to our world. Jesus has come among us and he has revealed facts that are absolutely true at all times and in all places. And then in response to a question toward the end of his life, Jesus made one of the most penetrating statements that are recorded for us in the Bible. He says in John chapter 14 and verse 6, and he didn't say this publicly, he said it in a small group context in reference to a very specific question. He says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now this is one of many statements that Jesus made that inevitably requires us to make a decision to accept it is either true or not true. Uh, He teaches as if his teaching has the authority of scientific fact, like gravity. Uh, for instance, we all understand the laws of, ingravi- of gravity are absolutely inflexible. Uh, our personal opinions and feelings about it are, are irrelevant. Gravity produces a stable environment in which we can enjoy life. No gravity, no atmosphere that surrounds the earth, therefore no life. Uh, we could not exist. Gravity provides us an environment in which we can run, ski, paraglide, play all kinds of sports. On the other hand, if we choose to ignore it uh, and jump out an airplane with no chute, for example, we will suffer the inevitable consequences. It's not a matter of our personal opinions and feelings. It is a law that has an inevitable force. And uh, Jesus tells us that God has appointed a very specific way to approach him that there is a specific protocol to pleasing him and to being embraced by him and being guided by him. And he tells us that we must learn this protocol and follow it closely. And if we do, God will open our eyes. He will grant us an experience of himself and provide us with all other kinds of personal and spiritual benefits. And the Bible teaches that knowing this is critical to our well-being and that our feelings about it are are really irrelevant. We must simply adapt to it. And and Jesus' teaching assumes the same kinds of laws, uh, of authority, that scientific fact does. Wildly popular idea number three and last is that all religions point to the same God and provide equally valid information about God. 
if we really look at this carefully, this idea reveals an extreme lack of awareness about what the Bible and different religions actually teach. Uh, Different ideas, uh, religions offer ideas about God that are not only different, they're mutually exclusive. Uh, They cannot all be right simultaneously if logic has any force. And of course, uh, it does. Hinduism is uh, actually a family of religions with radically different ideas about who or what God is. Uh, Buddhism teaches essentially that God is beyond human awareness and it's more of a philosophy of life. Of course, there's great variations and diversity in the broad millions of people uh, who are followers of of Buddhism, Uh, but it's more of a philosophy of life than in specific teaching about God. Judaism and Islam teach that God is distinct from his creation, and that's true according to the Bible, but those two faiths unmistakably teach that we must earn his acceptance and that being pleasing to him is all about working and striving and through force of will and determination conforming ourselves to this given pattern of instruction that is provided. But what what does Jesus say about this? Beautiful verse that all of you, most all of you, of course, have heard. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who does not believe has been judged already. Now there's a number, there's a whole bunch of facts that are wrapped in this expression here. Facts about God. Uh, Clearly, we can see in this verse that uh, God, according to Jesus, is distinct from what he has created and that he is a loving being. Marvelous, astonishing teaching of the Bible is that God is a loving, kind, generous, gracious being. And that is a beauty in the Christian faith that is certainly very hard to find in other of the world's religions. This passage teaches that he's a complex being. He's one God, one essence, and three persons. And we hear about two of those persons, God the Father, God the Son, in this particular passage. This passage teaches that he is concerned about our spiritual well-being and destiny and that he has taken the initiative to provide for us. And then there are these very sobering words, in some sense terrible words, that those who do not respond when they have exposure to the light, that the light, genomai, the truth has been revealed, it has been, it is broken into the system and it is progressively spread across the face of the earth. 
And for those who have exposure and turn away from that truth, there is some sort of judgment that rests upon them. And that's a, those are very sobering and disturbing uh, words. Now, I know some of you uh, have parents or other family members or close friends who don't believe. I, I certainly do, and I suspect uh, many or most of you do. So what do we, it, it, sometimes it's troubling. Some of Jesus' statements are very troubling when we are, they have these close relationships with people who have not accepted the teaching and the identity of Jesus in light of what Jesus says the consequences of that are. And uh, I think uh, I, I wrestle with this question, have for years. It's one thing to live in a Christian environment like the, United, the southern U.S. where I grew up and, and, and quote these kinds of verses. But if we live for many years in an ocean of a billion plus non-Christians, uh, these kinds of statements are troubling. Um, and so the way that I try to work this out is that uh, for we can trust God's gracious character. He is absolutely, he has all the information. He knows the hearts of every human being on earth, and we can trust him to respond justly and righteously given his knowledge of the hearts of all people. Um, there's been a very common teaching in that the history of the church that infants who die, who obviously couldn't understand the identity of Jesus, infants and children, that God will apply the work of Christ to them so that they are fully embraced and go to heaven when they pass from this earth. The intellectually handicapped are normally considered to be a part of that group. And for those millions of people that never had exposure to the truth, there is some accountability. The Apostle Paul says that the nature of God can be discerned clearly through what has been made. But the way I try to sort this out is that when a person will respond to the light and the truth that they have, if they do so in a way that is acceptable to God, he will apply the work of Christ to them. You don't have to accept that particular theory, but I've discussed that with some pretty sophisticated uh, theologian types, and, and they don't think it's or anything specifically heretical about that uh, idea, and it certainly brings me some comfort. But in any case, the Bible, Jesus, calls us to get the facts out, to do our very best in this life, to pray for those we are acquainted with, to beseech God to open their minds and hearts so that they will understand this truth that has come among us and they will open their hearts and minds and embrace it and experience the life transformation that can come as a result. And then finally, Jesus makes this wonderful statement in John chapter 8. He says about the truth... He says, if you abide in my word, if you live in it, absorb it, internalize it, expose yourself to it, then you shall know the truth, 
and the truth shall set you free. Not instantaneously, not without struggle and sometimes difficulty and confusion, but over time, Jesus flatly promises in this passage that if we will expose ourselves to the truth that's available to us and respond to it, then eventually it will work its way into our minds and hearts in such a way that it produces change and liberates us in different ways. So the uh, final point this morning, the big, the big idea, um, no one like him, six extraordinary facts. The big idea this morning is that Jesus Christ is the truth. He is full of truth. And the application would be this. Find a way, if you've not already, find a time and an approach that works for you to spend a few minutes, at least several times a week, meditating very carefully and prayerfully in what he has revealed. And the promise of Scripture is that if we do that, and there's all kinds of resources online, in bookstores, uh, there's read through the Bible in a year, there's this vast Christian publishing literature, all this material that's available for women and men and singles and children. And there, there's, it's a huge industry in which there's this material available so that people can find something that appeals and works for them, that gets them in to the scripture. And if we can find a way, the promise of the Bible is that he will speak to us. He will comfort us. He will illuminate our thinking. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, I, he said, I would have perished if your word had not comforted me. And when you and I get sometimes in painful circumstances and situations and relationships, if we will take those feelings and struggles to our Father in heaven above and seek his comfort, seek what he is seeking to communicate to us in it, then we will know. We will be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is from God. Jesus said in John 7, 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know whether my teaching is of God or whether I speak from myself. So when God speaks to us in those moments, if then we are willing to translate that into decisions and choices and actions, his promise here is that we will know beyond any shadow of a doubt that he's just not a number, another guy with an opinion. He's just not a person who you know, should be thought about among the many, many uh, philosophies and ideas that are prevalent in the world marketplace of ideas. He is the truth. He has come among us to provide truth that will set us free. Let's pray. Our Lord, thank you for this morning. I thank you for these fine friends and people. Thank you that we can gather each week and try to encourage each other to seek you. We can 
seek to unite our hearts and, and express for a few moments our praise to you for what you have done for us. I pray that uh, we could do that well every week, that you would enable us for a few minutes to forget about ourselves during our times of worship and to simply focus on expressing thanksgiving and gratitude and praise to you for your greatness and your majesty and your glory. And I pray that through this community, we could love each other and encourage each other and uh, counsel each other in a way that we can grasp ever more clearly and deeply the truth that you have revealed and be changed by it. And we pray in Jesus' name.